In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. Today, the Labor Department released the non farm payrolls numbers for the month of August. And I was pretty much listening to the various business channels and reading online the coverage of the report. And pretty much universally, the report was heralded as another strong jobs numbers. Uh, We've had a string of strong job creation. Uh, The economy is doing great. We're creating all these jobs. Uh, Very little coverage actually looked into the details of this particular report, which from my perspective were anything but strong. First of all, let's start with the headline number because it was above 200,000. And for some reason, whenever the number is north of 200,000, everybody seems to get excited as if, whoa, this is a key level, 200,000 jobs, which for an economy the size of the United States, this is really not a lot of jobs, even if we were creating 200,000 jobs a month. But we got 201,000 jobs. So we barely beat 200,000 by 1,000. But that did beat the expectation, right? The, I think the consensus was 190, maybe 195,000 jobs is what they were looking for. So, okay, we got 6,000 more than was expected. But not nearly as much coverage was given to the downward revisions to the two prior months which totaled 50,000 jobs. So last month for July, that was a weak month. 
they initially reported 157,000 jobs, which was a disappointment. Now they said, you know what? It was even worse. It was only 147,000 jobs. So they took 10,000 jobs away, which already negates the 6,000 beat we got in the month of August. But it's even worse if you go back to June. June, the original number for June was 248,000. I remember when we got that number, oh my God, this is fantastic. It blew out estimates, right? It was a really good number. Well, they reduced that by 40,000. That one went down to 208,000 from 248. They took 40,000 jobs off in, in one month. So A, that's 50,000 jobs that they took away. So net, this report uh, was way below estimates when you take a look at the fact that I don't think people were assuming that we were going to have 50,000 in negative revisions to the prior months. So it was a weaker report than probably what everybody was looking for, yet it was spun positive uh, by the media because the current month was... Uh, better than estimates. But actually, when you look into the types of jobs, manufacturing, last month, the government claimed that we created 37,000 manufacturing jobs. And I remember at the time, this was considered, oh, this is great. Look, Trump's economy, right? The tariffs are working. I mean, the tax cuts or the deregulation, you know, we're bringing back uh, the Rust Belt, the factory jobs are coming back. Well, the government went back and cut that number by over 50%. Now they said, you know what? We didn't create 37,000 factory jobs last month. We only created 18,000 factory jobs, a lot fewer than what we were originally told. Now, for the month of August, they were expecting another 21,000 manufacturing jobs to be created. Instead, we lost, lost 3,000 manufacturing jobs. So we actually fired people in the month of August for manufacturing. So much for the manufacturing revolution, so much for how uh, the tariffs are working and we're bringing our jobs back, that American manufacturers are bringing back the jobs. 3,000 pink slips sent out in the month of August. So this is bad news. If you're trying to hang your hat on the revival of the American industry, of American manufacturing, we lost 3,000 jobs. Now, why is there no coverage being given to the loss of manufacturing jobs, right? Everybody wants to pretend that this was a strong report. It was not a strong report. In fact, look at labor force participation. That was at 62.9, which had been an uptick over the past few months. And I remember the Trump administration or even people on television were saying, oh, you see, this shows that we have this strong economy because people are being pulled off the sidelines, right? People are coming and joining the labor force because the economy is so good. Well, the labor force participation rate went back down to 62.7 in one month. And if you look at the payroll to population ratio, and then another measure of the number of Americans that are actually contributing, that are actually in the workforce, and that dropped from 60.5 to 60.3. So fewer people in the workforce. The official unemployment rate stayed the same at 3.9%. I mean, they expected it to go down. So in a way, that was a disappointment because it didn't go down to 3.8. It stayed the same at 39 but obviously, 
far fewer people are in the labor force. So had people not left the labor force, then the unemployment rate might have gone up because maybe some of the people who left the labor force, well, now they're no longer looking for jobs because they're no longer part of the labor force. And so if you're not in the labor force, you can't be unemployed, even though you're not working, right? You don't have a job, uh, but you're not counted in the official statistics as being unemployed because in theory, you don't want a job. Uh, you just prefer uh, leisure or whatever it is. I know a lot of these guys are trying to claim that this is all about the baby boom retiring. It's not. It's about the, the grandchildren of the baby boom still living with their parents and not even taking part uh, of the labor force. But the one aspect of this report that really got the most coverage in the media and probably the most reaction in the market, which I will get to after I finish going over the report itself, was the gain in average hourly earnings, both for the month and year over year. So the expectation was for a gain of 0.3%, which would match the gain that we had in the prior month. But instead, we gained 0.4, which was really higher than anybody had thought. I mean, maybe 0.3 was the high end of the expectation. I think they were looking for you know 0.2 to 0.3, and it came out at 0.4. And if you go year over year, the prior number, the year-over-year increase had been 2.7, and they were looking for 2.8. Instead, we got a 2.9% gain in increase in average hourly earnings. And this was the number. Everybody's, oh, my God, this number is so hot. This is the strongest wage growth since, I don't know, when it was 2008 or before the financial crisis. Remember, we got a 2.9 print uh, I think the, early in the year, and that really spooked the markets. The bond market started to sell off. The stock market started to tank uh, because of a 2.9 number that was later revised down. Um, but you know, now who knows if this one will be revised down or not? Maybe it'll stay. But you know, I meant to make the point too. It, even though we got 201,000 non-farm payroll report, and everybody's excited. How do we know they're not going to take 40,000 away uh, a month or two later, just like they took 40,000 payrolls off of the June number? Maybe maybe this number is going to be revised down uh, to 170,000, 180,000. I mean, even if you take the 201,000 from this month, even if it's not downwardly revised, the average gain for the last three months, I think, is 185,000. So we're still not averaging 200,000. We're averaging 185. But last month was just 147. And given the tendency of the revisions to be down, I think that there's a very good chance that they revise this down. Now, I'm not sure about the wage numbers. I mean, maybe the wage numbers won't be revised down. I mean, maybe these numbers are going to keep going up. Because the labor force is shrinking, number one. So there are fewer people in the labor force, right, to earn these higher wages. But is a 2.9% year-over-year gain in wages really indicative of a strong economy? Or is it indicative of inflation? See, I think it's the latter. I think it's inflation that is the reason that wages are going up. Remember, wages are prices, right? They're the price that you pay to hire labor. So the price of labor is wages. Goods have, have other prices, right? But the price of goods and the price of labor are both affected by inflation. So because we have all this inflation, prices are rising. They're rising for goods and they're rising for labor. And in fact, if you take a look at the government's own measurement 
for the price of goods, right, the CPI, the year-over-year increase in consumer prices is 2.9%. That's exactly the same as the year-over-year increase in wages. Hmm. You know, to me, it seems like wages and prices are rising by the same amount due to inflation. That's it. And in fact, I think that the real cost of living is rising faster than 2.9% because the CPI, you know, they get hedonically adjusted and they use substitutions and they massage all the inputs so that by the time, you know, you get the output, uh, the number has been compressed. But if you actually look at what American workers are paying, what they're paying in rents, rents are rising around the country by record amounts and that they're going up a lot more than 3% a year. But you've got rents going up, you've got insurance rates going up, you've got utility costs going up, you've got energy costs going up, food costs going up, uh, a lot of local property taxes are going up, interest rates, we know those are going up, so people are paying more money now uh, to service their debts if they have home equity loans or anything uh, you know that's tied to an interest rate. And we call education costs are going up, so the real cost of living I think is rising a lot more than 3%. But even if you accept the government's own 2.9% year-over-year gain, that negates the entire gain in wages. So if all you've done with your increased wages is keep pace with higher prices, there's nothing to brag about. And of course, the government taxes your increase in wages. So if your wages go up on a pre-tax basis by 3%, if you're in the 30% tax bracket, well, you didn't gain 3%. You gained, you know, 2 point something percent, right? Well, prices are, are what they are. So on an after-tax basis, even if your wages are rising at the same rate as the cost of living, your real wages are falling because you're paying extra income taxes on the extra money that you earned simply to keep you pace with the increase in the cost of living. But the government took its cut of your higher wages, and so you didn't have all those wages to pay the higher prices. So even if the numbers are the same, your real after-tax income is being diminished. Now, is that something that we should be bragging about? Oh, this is a great report, you know, because consumers only saw a, a small reduction in their, in their after-tax wages, right, adjusted for inflation. If we really had a strong economy, what would be happening is that real wages would be going up. And in fact, in a real strong economy, the way real wages go up is prices go down. Cost of living goes down, and so your paycheck goes further. As workers become more productive and they can produce more stuff, well, the price of stuff goes down. And in the past, what has made workers more productive has been capital. It's because their employers can provide them with better tools, better machines that enables them to make more output, to produce more output with less human input. And so now there's more stuff, the cost of living goes down, and your wages go further. That's how an economy really grows. That's how standards of living increase. But that's not what's happening right now. All that's happening is we've created a bunch of money. That's inflation. And because we have inflation, wages go up, just like the price of everything else. But the bottom line is the price of everything you need to buy is probably going up faster than the price of what you're able to charge your employer for your wages. And then after the government takes its cut of those wages, you're still behind the eight ball.
Now, of course, the big reaction in the markets was to the uh, wage numbers, the higher than expected number, because the way the markets react, they see this as evidence that the Fed is going to raise interest rates maybe more than is currently expected uh, by the markets because, oh, this, this wage growth, this is the inflation, and now the Fed is going to have to uh, keep hiking rates. And the expectations of a more hawkish Fed or a Fed that is going to be raising rates more causes traders to buy the dollar and the dollar rose. In fact, the dollar index got back above uh, 95 today, or it was right about 95. But I think before uh, the numbers came out, we were even trading slightly below. I think we got down to like 94, 89, 90-ish. But we closed at 95.41, up almost 0.4 on a day. The entire increase came the minute after the hotter than expected number came out on average hourly earnings. Because every other aspect of this report was weak. Right? The revisions were weak. The loss of jobs in uh, manufacturing was weak. Uh, the exodus of Americans from the labor force was weak. The unemployment rate not falling as expected was weak. So the only thing that was actually strong from the point of view of the way the markets would react is the bigger than expected increase in wages. And so that is what the traders were reacting to. At the same time, too, the price of gold sold off. Gold prices were up a few bucks. The number came out and, and, and gold dropped. I mean, gold went down about 5 or $6. I think it only closed down a little over $3. $11.96 and change, I think, is where we went out. So we were above 1200 of course, but then uh, this uh, number caused a sell-off in gold. But again, traders are jumping to the wrong conclusion with respect to what higher inflation actually means for the dollar and for the price of gold. Because more inflation is not bullish for the dollar. I mean, by definition, inflation means the dollar is losing purchasing power right? because the dollar doesn't go as far because you can't buy as much with your dollar. So inflation is not good for a currency. Inflation is bad for a currency. Now, I think the markets get that. They just believe that the Fed is going to make sure that that increase in inflation uh, isn't sustainable, that the Fed is going to jack rates up to bring that you know, uh, burgeoning inflationary problem to a halt before it does too much damage. But of course, that's not going to happen because that's impossible given the precarious situation that we are in and the enormity of the debt. But also this idea that higher inflation is bad for gold because it's going to mean more rate hikes. Gold is an inflation hedge. It's the absence of inflation that might be bad for gold. As inflation rears its ugly head, that makes gold look prettier and prettier. So people should be buying gold when the inflation numbers are, are higher. Now, eventually they will once people realize that no matter how hot the inflation fire burns, the Fed's not going to put it out. In fact, they're not even going to try to put it out once the economy is obviously in trouble, once the economy is decelerating, we're actually in recession. But right now, the rumors uh, of this booming economy, the economy booming like it's never boomed before, uh, still persist. So everybody thinks we've got this real strong economy. And aha, these rising wages is more proof 
of a strong economy when in fact the only thing the increase in wages prove is that inflation is pushing up wages just like it's pushing up other prices but this is not about economic strength it's about economic weakness but to the extent that the markets perceive it as strength then they think the fed will be in a position to raise interest rates to kind of contain the inflation when the actual position the fed is going to be in is staring at stagflation where they're going to see and increasing uh, pricing pressures as the economy is weakening into recession. And in fact, if you look at what else is going on, right, again, look at the jobs numbers, the loss of jobs in the manufacturing sector is evidence of underlying economic weakness. But look at some of the market indicators. Yes, I know the tech stocks have been strong, although they have been pulling back uh, recently, the last several days. You know, one in particular, uh, was uh, Tesla. Tesla's come under a lot of selling pressure. Price of the stock was down about 5.5% today. You know, it's down around 260. I think when I first talked about Tesla, uh, when Elon Musk uh, tweeted out about his potential buyout, I mean, the stock was like 360. And I think he was talking about 420, I guess, was the price that he said he was going to do uh, uh, the buyout. And if you remember on that podcast, I said, there's no way this is going to happen. I went over a number of reasons why it was completely ridiculous to even believe that a buyout was even possible or even if it was, if it was something that would be in the interest of Tesla, which it was not. And at the time, I was concerned that this could uh, result in a regulatory backlash because it seemed like uh, the main goal of the tweet was to manipulate the stock and to try to scare the shorts. In fact, that's exactly what's happened because now they're all lowering up there over at Tesla. In fact, they've already have a lawsuit. Some short seller has filed a stock manipulation lawsuit. Uh, against Musk and, and Tesla. But, you know, one of the catalysts for the sell-off today, besides the resignation of another Tesla executive, was the fact uh, that Elon Musk was on the Joe Rogan podcast last night. And I happened to watch that. I didn't watch the entire thing. I watched a good chunk of it. And I do intend, I mean, I want to listen to it all. It was a very interesting uh, discussion um, and, you know, they didn't even get into the, the, uh, the, the tweet and all the controversy surrounding that. But the big deal uh, that everybody seems to have made about the podcast was the fact that Elon Musk smoked some weed on, on, on the show and that, oh, this is a terrible thing for the CEO of a company to be smoking pot. And first of all, I mean, I, it was like uh, some kind of a small cigar that was a combination of tobacco and pot. So it wasn't just like a doobie that he was that he was smoking, but there was some pot in there, uh, which was perfectly legal in the state of uh, California. In fact, Musk, even before he took a hit of it, he said, well, this is legal, right? And Joe was yeah, it's totally legal. So he took one puff and this is two hours into the podcast. Meanwhile, they both were drinking whiskey from the beginning. Right. I mean, whiskey and weed. I mean, when I was on the Joe Rogan podcast, nobody offered me any whiskey or weed, although I don't know, I guess if I'd have asked for it, I'm sure uh, Joe would have uh, you know, poured me a glass or something like that. But they were drinking and smoking or not smoking. They were drinking for the entire podcast. And then two hours into it. Right. You know, maybe 20 minutes before 30 minutes before the end of the podcast. That's when Joe Rogan lights one up and he lets Elon Musk have a try and he takes one hit. And I don't even know if he inhaled. I mean, he might have done it uh, Bill Clinton style. I mean, he barely had that thing to his lips. And all of a sudden, this is a big deal. I mean, first of all, he did this late at night. It's on his 
time off. He's not on the job. I mean, although some people could say that it's public relations because obviously a lot of stockholders and people who are short Tesla could have been watching the Joe Rogan show. So in that respect, I mean, I guess you're always working, but he wasn't making key decisions that affect the management of the company, even if he did get a little bit stoned. Uh, what difference does it make? Of course, nobody cares that they were drinking whiskey. I mean, what, you know, what if he got drunk? I mean, it still shows that you have uh, this sentiment that somehow pot is is so much worse than alcohol. Look, smoking a joint every once in a while is not going to affect uh, Elon Musk's judgment. I mean, maybe he's got some other things that are affecting his judgment, but not having a hit of a joint uh, in the evening on his time, uh, you know, uh, you know, when he's not at work is going to do it. But of course, you know, if he was a complete pothead, sure, that might be a problem, just like he was a total alcoholic and he was drinking all the time. But nobody seemed to have a problem with the fact that he was drinking whiskey. Uh, but they had a problem with the fact that that he had a hit off uh, off of a off of a cigar that was part uh, tobacco and part uh, marijuana. But I just I don't know. I just went off on this tangent. I want to get back to where I was just talking about the overall markets. But to me, if you want to look at some of the signals you're getting from the markets. Look at the automobile stocks, General Motors and Ford, which are basically the two only automobile companies we got left, right? Chrysler is now owned by Fiat, right? So we got two companies left, GM and Ford. They both hit 52-week lows today, and they're both in bear markets. General Motors closed at 33.91. That's a new low for the year. The stock was as high as 46.76 just uh, earlier in the year. I mean, about in June. So in the last couple of months, this stock's down almost 30%. I mean, it's a bear market. Now, if you look at Ford, the story at Ford is even worse. I mean, Ford was up at around 12 bucks a couple of months ago. It's down to 927. This thing is down, you know, what, 40%, especially if you look at its high. It was at $16 in September of 2014. Ford is all the way back to where it was near the lows uh, the summer of 2012. So six years ago, you're at a six-year low, maybe even better than that. I mean, if we go a little lower, we're going to be uh, at an eight-year low in the price of Ford. So you got our two automobile companies solidly in bear market territory, making new lows. These are vital parts of the economy, even though there's they're just two companies, they're two pretty big companies, and they manufacture something very important, automobiles. And obviously, there's a lot of industries that you know feed off the auto industry, all the auto parts dealers, right, that are making parts that are selling them to GM and Ford. And these are the good jobs. These are the high-paying jobs. These are the jobs that Trump promised to bring back. Remember, he oh, he was really campaigning in Detroit and all around at places where they make cars. Oh, we're going to bring back American automobiles, right? He's making a big deal. These companies are hitting 52-week or multi-year lows. So the tariffs aren't working. The tax cuts aren't working. Nothing is working. The auto companies are going down. And these stocks, remember, are forward-looking. So the stocks are basically saying that there is a big slowdown coming in the automobile sector, that profits are not going to be there, that profits are going away in the auto sector, which means that tax cuts aren't going to be very valuable if there aren't any profits. I mean, maybe the companies are going to be experiencing losses. But then also look at what's happening with the home building companies. All these stocks getting killed. I mean, some of these stocks down over 5% today alone, uh, but the stocks are getting beat up 3 4%, 5%. They're pretty much all in bear market territory. 
right? So now you also have the home builders that are basically saying, hey, the housing industry is really going to slow down, right? That's why these stocks are selling off in advance of the sell-off in the housing industry. So those are two very important sectors of the economy, housing and autos. And if they are on the verge of recession, if the stocks in those sectors are forecasting recession in those sectors, how is it possible that the U.S. economy is experiencing a historic boom, right? It's booming like it's never boomed before, yet autos and housing are not only not part of the boom, they're actually having a bust, right? Riddle me that, Batman, right? How is it that the economy is so strong when these two key sectors are so weak, right? And why are these sectors so weak? Well, one reason, of course, is rising interest rates, and everybody believes that interest rates are going to keep rising, which means those are more nails in the coffin of the auto sector and the housing sector. And of course, both autos and housing are being hit by inflation because of raw material costs. It's more expensive to build cars. It's even more expensive to build homes. And in fact, the tariffs, which are even going to get higher. In fact, Trump was out today. He was saying we're going to put another $240 billion of tariffs on Chinese products, in addition to the $200 billion we already got queued up. And yesterday he was talking about, hey, we're going to go after Japan. I mean, we're taking on the whole world, right, which means we're really just, you know, taking on ourselves because we're the ones that have the most to lose uh, by, you know, picking all these fights with all the people, all the countries that are supplying us with all the goods that we need and loaning us all the money that we need, right? So we're, we're basically attacking our vendors and our bankers, and somehow we think that this is a good strategy. But to the extent that these tariffs actually kick in, this will simply make building homes and cars even more expensive and so push this sector even further in the bear market territory and feed the contraction. So you can't have a recession in autos and housing simultaneously and somehow the rest of the U.S. economy is impervious to this recession. These are obviously big leading indicators that something is wrong that everybody wants to ignore. And remember, this is 10 years. We're almost 10 years from the collapse of Lehman Brothers, right? All that happened in summer of 2008. And, you know, I am seeing some publicity now as we come around to the anniversary of the bailout of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And by the way, if housing is about to roll over, which I think it is, and if these home builders are a leading indicator now, just like they were 10 years ago, we're about to see some huge losses at Fannie and Freddie. You know, everybody's excited now because all of the bailout money was repaid because over the last, you know, 10 years during the housing boom, as Fannie and Freddie has been underwriting and guaranteeing all these mortgages, right? They've been making a profit and they've been sending those profits to the U.S. government uh, reducing the overall size of the deficit because they've been able to offset the deficits with the temporary profits that Fannie was generating by insuring mortgages that we all know are ultimately going to end in default. And what's going to happen as this next recession unfolds and real estate prices tank, which they will, and all these mortgages, which Fannie and Freddie guaranteed, start defaulting, then all those checks are going to turn into bills and the losses to the taxpayers are going to be in the hundreds of billions, if not in excess of a trillion dollars. And then this is going to be on top of 
all the deficits. So not only are we going to have these massive deficits to fund, but we're going to have to fund all the losses that are going to be the result of uh, the government now owning and operating uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. But the bottom line is you've got overwhelming evidence that the economy is not nearly as strong as everybody thinks it is. Right? The evidence is staring people right in the face, yet nobody can see it. And of course, they all ignore the ticking time bomb about what happens if we have a recession. See, everybody just assumes we're not going to have one, right? They're ignoring all this evidence that we're headed for one. And clearly, you know, it's long overdue. I mean, we should have had one already. So people should be expecting one uh, more than thinking that it's not going to happen. But what's worse than a recession happening is recognizing how horrific it's going to be. Because if we do slip into an unexpected recession, then what is the government going to do about it? The Fed is going to have to cut rates, but the markets are not prepared for rate cuts. They're prepared for a bunch of rate hikes. The Fed is going to have to do more quantitative easing when the markets are bracing for quantitative tightening. So this is a massive shift in sentiment, but also inflation is picking up and when the dollar tanks, which is exactly what it will do when the Fed has to go from tightening to easing, when the Fed has to go from QT to QE, the dollar is going to drop like a stone. And that's going to throw gasoline on the inflation fire. And so that means that we have stagflation. That means that prices are shooting up just as the economy is collapsing. That's the worst of all possible worlds. I mean, that is something that's so bad that the Fed didn't even stress test for that. Remember, I went over the Fed stress tests and in their most extreme economic scenario that they can envision, at no point did the yield on the 30-year go over 3%. At no point did inflation get above 2%. Well, I mean, we could see rates well above 3% in stagflation. We could see inflation, obviously, well above those numbers. So nobody is really contemplating how bad this next recession could be or will be if, in fact, we have one. But everybody is just ignoring all the evidence that we're headed to one anyway, that nobody is bothering to even consider the possibilities of just how bad it's going to be or the nature of the box that the Fed has painted itself into with respect to its inability to fight inflation and recession simultaneously and the enormity of the deficits and the debt that we have as a nation as we are embarking on this recession. We've never entered a recession with this much debt. We've never entered a recession with interest rates already this low. So we are starting from a very, very weak position into what I believe will be the worst recession we've ever had. I mean, that I think potentially that includes the Great Depression. In 2008, they were saying, oh, that was the worst recession since the Great Depression. Well, the next one won't be the worst recession since the Great Depression. It'll be the worst recession, including the Great Depression, which means that we can't even call it a recession. We'd have to call it a, a depression. I want to just finish up uh, today's podcast talking a little bit again about Bitcoin, which continued to weaken uh, after I finished recording my last podcast. I think as I was recording it, Bitcoin was trading for around 6,900 and change. It had just broken below 7,000. I think maybe the catalyst, as I speculated at the time, was Goldman Sachs backing away from uh, developing a crypto uh, trading desk. We ended up falling later that night. The low got to about 6250. 
before bouncing back. And I think we have bounced back above 6,500. As I am recording now, we're trading in the 6,400. So still uh, down quite a bit. The overall uh, market cap is now uh, just a little bit north of 200 billion, maybe uh, 202, 203 billion. Uh, and Bitcoin is still, it's just under 55% of market dominance. So uh, the other, Bitcoin, you know, losing a little bit more uh, relative to the other currencies, because I think it was a little bit stronger when I spoke. But the entire sector is is going down. But the reason I wanted to even bring it up again today is to call everyone's attention to a YouTube video that I posted earlier this morning on my YouTube channel. And it's only a three-minute video. So if you got three minutes, check it out. I mean, basically, I had remembered a, a skit from the old Sesame Street. You know, there's always this character, Lefty, and he's always trying to get Ernie to buy stuff. He's trying to con him into, into buying something he doesn't need. And there was one particular uh, episode where uh, Lefty tries to get Ernie to buy some air. And I was just thinking about that episode. And to me... Uh, it, it reminded me so much about Bitcoin and about you know the efforts that so many people have uh, to get other people to, to buy Bitcoin and get them into Bitcoin. And so I just decided to take that clip. I didn't even use the entire clip. I took some of it out to make it a little shorter. But you know, just instead of talking about air, talking about Bitcoin. And you'll see that simply just changing one word from air to Bitcoin, just how true this little skit rings because on so many levels and from start to finish, and, and, and it, you probably want to watch it a few times to really appreciate all the subtleties about this skit and how relevant it is to Bitcoin. Again, on many, many levels from start to finish. Now, I guess if you're caught up in the Bitcoin mania, you're probably not going to see this. You're just going to think this is ridiculous. It's just another example of Peter Schiff, the old fogey who just doesn't get it, right? I'm too dumb. I'm too illiterate. I don't get technology. I'm in the Stone Age or, you know, I'm just a gold salesman, so I'm just going to deny this. So if that's the case, maybe you'll get a chuckle out of it. But if you've already figured this out, right, if you understand the nature of money and crypto cryptocurrencies, you will really appreciate this video and get all of its subtleties and understand it on all the levels. You know, so watch it, share it uh, with your friends. I'd like to see it get a little attraction, even among the Bitcoin uh, a crowd, the cult. I mean, yeah, yeah. if you want to make fun of me, hey, look at this idiot, Peter Schiff, look at his video. You know, let's, you know, get it out there. It should be a topic of discussion. And maybe it'll cause some people who own Bitcoin uh, to take a fresh look at, at what they're doing and think about, hey, maybe some of the people like Peter Schiff, and again, I'm not the only person. There are plenty of other smart people who have looked at this and who have drawn the same conclusions that I have. And hey, you know, maybe, you know, maybe there's something to it, right? And so I'd like to see this video get a lot more views, get some traction, and let's see if it can start a, a deeper discussion of, of money, what is money, what isn't money, and whether or not cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin actually have a future.